Hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Pete. I'm Carl. I'm Jason. And I'm Keith. And we are using an experimental Blu-ray module to transport ourselves back to the year when the UK's first mobile phone network launched, the first compact disc album went on sale, the first Sinclair C5 electronic microcar rolled off the production line, and the last Sinclair C5 electronic microcar also rolled off the production line because it's 1985, and we're all heading to season 22. Uh, Guys, I think, are we all of a certain age? I think most of us were around back then. Nobody's going to be offended yeah, by that certainly. accusation. <laughs> are you old enough to remember? Very much so, yes. Now, Keith, you, as this is only an audio podcast, you've, you've, you've gone the full works. You're wearing your Sixth Doctor um, garb. I have dressed for the occasion. Yes. Is, is he your favourite Doctor? Colin, yes. Always has yeah. been. The, anybody asks me which is my favourite Doctor, I always say the Sixth Doctor. Mainly because it's true, and also I like to see the look on people's faces. So, <laughs> I, I'm in that club too. I am, I am in that club too. What about you guys, uh, Jason? Um, I watched most of this season. Um, I think towards the end, I have no memory of watching Time Lash whatsoever, which is always a probably a good thing. <laughs> There's probably about six million people who shared. <laughs> Bless it. Uh, and then I remember going round to a mate's house. And seeing that Doctor Who was still on and the, uh, episode two of Revelation of the Daleks had just started. So I don't know what happened. Perhaps um, I just got distracted with other things or perhaps I thought with the news of the cancellation, which yeah. I think fell between part two and three of the two Doctors. That's right. I probably yeah. thought the two Doctors was the last one in the series and then probably like started like you know going out riding a BMX bike like the following Saturday. So... Uh, yeah, so I didn't have that obviously caught up on those stories since. If there's no Doctor Who, what are we going to do? Go outside and play? Exactly. I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Cole? Were you, were you living in the UK at the time? Because you haven't always. Uh, no, I did. Uh, I was. Yes. No, it was like 81 when I was living in Switzerland. So I, mi- I missed, I think, Peter Davison's first season, apart ah, from right. a bit. So, no, I saw this as it went out. I remember it. Like Jason, I don't remember Time Lash, um, uh, but yeah, and no, I pre- I pretty much remember it all all going out and liking it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just for, for me, this was a pivotal one. I think as we go through fan circles, there there you sort of go through different tiers of of, of how much Doctor Who stuff you've got or can have. And this, this was the year when we got a video recorder, and I got a paper round. So I I previously only had one cassette on on which I would tape occasional Doctor Who's Fantastic. or Star Wars or whatever. There was there was a, a traumatic day when I taped over Star Wars with the five Doctors, and I don't regret, <laughs> I, I don't regret it. I was it? I know it was the other way around. What am I saying? I taped over the five Doctors with Star Wars because yeah, sorry because I well I'd seen I'd watched it about six times, and I figured that was going to be plenty. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's, it's such a shame that both of those have been lost i yeah. never ever returned to the bbc uh, just those telly snaps of uh, <laughs> death star yeah you just get them in special editions now <laughs> yes <laughs> specialer and specialer <laughs> 
so we have got this marvelous blu-ray box available to us now with its as usual just just horrendously good looking front cover image by from mr binding uh and it's i'm very pleased to see the uh the, the fake tardis dresser on on the back uh within through the time vortex i think i think that deserves a big big finish box set if, if nothing else does because the adventures of that dresser that it must have nipped off while the doctor and perry were looking the other way is uh, is something is a wonderful thing to behold it, it was 85 another thing because i did google was um the year that bt stopped having red phone boxes and brought in the big plasticky the plastic ones you know there were the 80s style ones uh and uh, i guess that's what inspired jnt to do his little gimmick about yes we're getting rid of the tardis you'll all want to be writing into the your local newspapers to complain and say we must keep a blue tardis maybe it was just me who did that but i think it got a bit of publicity didn't it now oh, there's no publicity such as any publicity for JNT in there. <laughs> yes. So the season kicks off with Colin Baker's debut as the Doctor. Um, I think it was it's great that we, we just went straight in with this yes, story. That's right. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> everybody loved it. him straight away. Sack <laughs> uh, of the Cybermen. Yeah, Jason, what, what what does Attack of the Cybermen mean to you to get the ball rolling? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most controversial stories, isn't it, um, of the season. And it was the one, I think, that always like turned up on the news reports when they were saying that Doctor Who's got too violent, that's why it's being taken off the air. And obviously you've got the scene with Lytton um, having his like, hands crushed by the Cybermen. Um but amazingly, I think this has a U certificate, <laughs> which is on the, yeah, yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> Do you think they were, they were just chatting amongst themselves by that point? Because <laughs> I don't know. It's violent, what it? happened? Oh, yeah, just give it a U. It's Doctor Who. It's fine. Yeah. Always, um, yeah. But I think this story is is that classic thing of it's a story of two halves. The first mm. part is absolutely excellent. It's kind of like got a bit of a Sweeney feel to it. We've obviously Litton. And uh, you know Terry Malloy and um, Brian Glover, and I can't remember the name of the other chap. Um, obviously, planning to rob the bank, but Lytton's obviously got a uh, another plan up his sleeve. You've got the brilliantly um, lit scenes in the sewers, which for once are not overlit by the BBC lighting department. Yeah. And then it kind of like all oh, goes a little bit wrong with part two as they get to Telos and you just get bombarded by a multitude of <laughs> continuity references. So you just imagine the the average um, viewer going, what? Hey, what? <laughs> Expected to remember what happened in 1966 and 1967. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's no detriment to the story. I still think it's an enjoyable follow-up to Resurrection of the Daleks. Uh, you know, and Paul Lamore's debut script. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to have Alex, Eric Saywood nurturing new talent like this, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and, and on the Blu-ray, we've got the amazing thing of his um, his invoices that he sent, well, that he, well, his agent invoicing Paul Lamore for the rights to use his character of Lytton in her script. Just, <laughs> just a fantastic wheeze. That's very... Uh, if, nice uh, little scam there yeah. going on, isn't it? Yeah. I'm gonna def- I'll, I'll defend episode two a bit because I love the cryons. Just from oh. straight, I, I, I love that, that it's... It and like you say, it, it takes you to this. It's, it's almost a sequel, isn't it? It could easily be a, a, another another story. You could, you could 
you, know, you could have structured it differently and had the going back to to the to tell us to find out what the Cryons have been up to. It's like a so. sequel to Free Stories, isn't it? It's a sequel to the Tenth Planet. It's a sequel to Tomb of the Cybermen. It's a, and it's a sequel to Resurrection of the Daleks. It's like, and to itself, yeah. <laughs> Does it all the sequels, be? all the sequels. But of course, it's exactly what fans were crying out for, isn't it? Um, we want more. We've got our monster books. We've got our. Oh, I adored it at the time. I was ticking them off with my fingers with every mention. It was brilliant. <laughs> Never been happier. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favourite cry on? Oh, Faith Brown. She is, isn't she? Well, she's the only one you can vaguely recognise for obvious reasons. Well, I thought they were... And it's funny, again, I'm not, I'm not going to keep banging on about these notes, but I've, I've only read... The, I've, so it, the thing with these discs is it's great if you've got a Blu-ray reader you can attach to a computer uh to, to dive into the pdfs that come with it because the, the stuff that's in there is just uh treasure trove uh, i guess it's a lot of the stuff that sources the production you get the highlights in the production notes but but there's things like there's the letter that um matthew robinson originally wrote to um to maureen Lipman offering the, her that role the role of flast and saying oh, this is a, 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 a wonderful role for a feminine character who's going to lead these these female rebels against the cyber men and, and you get a wonderful death scene you get to be boiled to death by a cyberman how many actresses could say that and then there's another copy of the same letter and he's just crossed out dear miss Lippman and put, put in uh, dear miss dear miss brown <laughs> he's like working his way around trying to get somebody to take on that uh, little character role I think Colin gets to be very doctory with her, though, doesn't he? Like the dialogue they have together is probably the most doctory he's been at that point. Like slagging off the time, yeah. sort of like being caring towards her, and and uh, the, the their interaction between the two of them is probably better than him and Perry in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and around the, and all through the eighties, they often, in a way, is she, is she a bit like the the Neris Hughes character from Kinder, or um, what's the name in The Awakening? They've they've, they've done it with Davison too, pairing up with a a more mature woman who's not the girl who's there to be a sidekick, but but who's going to be written in a more interesting way. If only the, the, the companions had all been written with that level of agency. But this is a good story for Perry, though, I think. She gets, she doesn't spend the whole time in, pe- in peril and she gets to, um, her, her, her banter with the doctor, the teasing of each other is much more evenly balanced, I think, than it is. Actually, then it is late, later in the season. It's like they sort of go back to, to twin dilemma levels. Uh, we'll get we'll, we'll get to a certain story in in, in a bit, but um, yeah, Perry, I think Perry gets a fairly good innings in this, and she gets to wear clothes, of course, at least when they get to tell us. <laughs> <Part two>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Uh... I do like the characters in this. I think it's, um, uh, you know, obviously we get Brian Glover, who's terrific. And then uh, I was, I always thought Morris Corbin was brilliant because I, you know, I watched Howard's Way as well. So mm. this was his gig before then. That's but um, I've got a quote. There's a Howard's Way podcast and someone describes him as um, always speaking like Stephen Fry from that Stephen Fry and Laurie sketch where he's, damn it, Marjorie, damn it. It's going to be the best business in you, Toxeter. That one. Right. <laughs> we, oh, God, we used to do that in sixth form at school. <laughs> There's a Howard's Way podcast. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How sad is that? Anyway, here's my Doctor Who. Uh, here's my when we get to Mark of the Rani with Kate O'Mara, you'll tell me there's a Triangle podcast as well. Oh, well there's a there's Ken Masters in Vengeance on Varus. It's this is the <laughs> this is the Howard's Way crossover. 
because yeah, and the, the 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 ratings for episode one were fantastic. This eight eight point nine million. It's never bettered until um until Paul McGann comes along. Oh wow. Uh, and although and there was a big drop the next week, but it wasn't just. I don't think it it was down to seven point two for the next week. I think that that and, and it fell out of the top hundred, but that's not unusual in the eighties. It went from seventy one to one hundred and four, but those chart places are all over the place from from um, around, yeah. around this time. I think, uh, but of course, this is when it was up against the A team, and everyone at my school was watching the A team. I was going, I was like going to school the next day. How old was I? Twelve. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I- I distinctly remember at school there seemed to be a huge drop off of of people in like my age range who watched Doctor Who and then kind of like when Peter Davidson left, it's almost as if that's the point they all like leapt off um, and really didn't like, you know, kind of like watch the Colin Baker era or the Sylvester McCoy era at all. It was season 21 at my school. It seemed to be Worries of the Deep that did for them. Like, up until then, we've been like quite supportive of the series, and then from that moment onwards, I was becoming like a lone voice in the playground. I had a mate who, who used to constantly rile me and, and take the mick of the uh, one of the panels in the Twin Dilemma that's covered in tinfoil, one of the control panels. And he used to say, "You're still watching that tinfoil program?" <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I guess it was the strategy, wasn't it, to low put loads of money into a couple of stories and make them look really high budget and hope that they're the ones that people remember. And it just doesn't work like that way around, does it? Sadly, with the popular, the, the popular uh, reminiscences, it's the it's the bit that bits that look naff because we were saving the money to to go to Lanzarote. Yeah. Uh, who who do we think is the more effective set of villains in this? Is it the Cybermen? Or the Met Police, <laughs> uh, because they're really shadowy and evil. They sort of have silences on their guns, which feels a bit more creepy, and they don't say anything. Whereas the Cybermen sort of, you know, walk around like Silurians, just bumping into things. <laughs> and, well, and we've got Terry Mollard as, as the halfway, half half Dalek, half cop. You can tell that he's the he's the one who's. Um... Uh, not fitting in with the, the other gang of uh, of crimos, is he? Just too nice and cuddly, isn't he? Just... <laughs> it's, it's that criminal um, crime story cliche of the one who's been drafted in at the last minute, and there's always a suspicion about that particular member in the group, isn't there? Yeah. One, one scene I really love is this, the scene with him and Perry and the Doctor, uh, where Colin... Uh, Colin, the doctor, um, does, yeah, just t- turns to Perry and says, oh, "Shoot him, Perry! Shoot yeah, him. exactly." Uh, yeah, because with any other doctor, it would be funny, and you'd know there was no chance he really meant it. But with Colin's doctor, particularly with this being straight after Twin Dilemma, there's that thing. Of, I mean, I guess he's joking, and I guess he doesn't mean it. But there's just oh, a tiny that. edge of is he going mad again? Does he really mean it? I just I, could, I have a really strong memory of thinking that watching it. That's what I liked about it. I mean, there were so many great Colin moments in this season um but that was that was terrific because it's uh i just would be good if he if she had done it and missed be like don't actually do it (laughs) (laughs) what are you doing and uh stratton and bates that are half man half cybermen men up on telos are very um i i know a lot of people uh find it just think it's always oh, it's just bad writing that nothing that they don't serve a purpose in the plot. But I think I mean they're a red herring. You really invested in them, and it's a real shock when they just. Uh, it's um, it's Eric Sayward doing what he he liked 
to do, wasn't he? He's following in the footsteps of Robert Holmes and doing that classic Holmesian double act, which obviously, like, because he, he admired Robert Holmes, like, writing so much, and you can tell that's what he's going for with those two characters. But people always say, which is my favourite Cyberman story? Now, I always say the best Cyberman story is Attack of the Cyberman, because it's one of the few stories that actually deals with cyber conversion. I mean, the majority of the stories don't. I mean, especially the ones of the 60s, they're just uh, villain of the week, apart from Tomb. Whereas um, this one, it actually deals with people being turned into them. And so it may not be the best Cyberman story, but I always think it's like the most Cyberman Cyberman story. It is a bit of a letdown, though, the way they just, like, wait behind some clearly plastic door uh, and then they just get shot. It, it, it doesn't, there's not much pathos to it. It's just kind of like, oh, well, you know, it just... Yeah, and and that's okay. I mean, it's, I don't think it's meant to be particularly existential or profound. You know, no, yeah, it's it's just there. Um, but it but it, it does surprise me when I saw it. When I watched it, I was like, okay, well, what was the point of that? But okay. Now, we're not going to convince anyone, we're not going to try, that this is the cuddliest, loveliest season of Doctor Who in which everybody ends up being being made better. Uh, so I think we should really go for it and, and decide who has the best deaths in each story uh, as we go through it. Who has the most distressing, upsetting, horrible, merciless, Sawardian death? Or not. <laughs> <laughs> so on the count of three, uh, if we all just say, if you describe the character, if you can't remember the name, who we think gets the best death in this story. Okay, so one, two, three. Stress. Did we all say something different? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess go around and explain. Well, now we can explain. I said thrust. The the um. Uh, oh no, I meant flast. I mean, oh, how could I get thrust and flast? <laughs> what a fool! They let me on podcasts. Um, uh, Faith Brown is who I meant. Uh, that bit where she where the side men like really nasty bouncers chuck her out of the the room full of. <laughs> chuck her out of the room full of explosives that they've kept her in uh, and she just boils to death in the corridor they let me back in I'm not that drunk wafting uh, <laughs> about I think she's fantastic who, who has another nomination I don't think any of you went for her did you? or did you I didn't hear. <laughs> that's the problem with doing it like that um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had the Cyberman who dies when the doctor kills him by leaving out some cocaine in, in a lasagna tray. <laughs> With the flapping arms. <laughs> yeah. It sort of looked like one of them said, just one, run, Jeremy, run, save yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a good there way go. to go. Uh, Jason, who did you... I, I voted for the, the the sewage guy at the beginning because I think it's, it's one of those really good, creepy Doctor Who deaths that uh, at the time in the show it really didn't kind of like do many of those I think behind the scene uh, behind the sofa moments and and that kind of like is really really well shot um, because you don't know obviously what's like coming at him at, at the time you, you you guess it's a cyberman because of the title of the story <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. really really well shot by Matthew <laughs> Robinson yeah he's a really good director isn't he and and uh yeah doing it from the cyberman's point of view it's for, yeah, and the music. We haven't mentioned the music yet. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to talk about the music in all of this season. But this one's got a very 
Uh, some people find it over the top, but I, I still, but I like it. I can hum all the different tunes. I can hum Lytton's tune right now. I won't. But um, is it is it Malcolm Clark? Yeah, yeah it's Malcolm Clark. He reuses a lot of his riffs, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah there's a few yeah. Earthshock riffs in there as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. But Keith, who's your victim of the week? It's the Cyberman getting his head punched off when the fist comes through the. Uh, it makes me jump, and it still makes me jump now, even though I know it's going to happen. It, to this day, it still makes me jump. I was quite gratified to see on behind the sofa, it made all them jump as well. So uh, that's the best one, getting a fist in the face. <laughs> and we haven't, yeah, and the tombs. I go back and forth on the tombs, because I'm at, at the time thinking, oh, they've done it wrong. That's not what the tombs actually look like. But then, ultimately, at the time, they thought no one was ever going to be able to see the tombs. The, the only... Th- Measure the side men are in these tomb things where they're being refrigerated. We've not got much money. I sort of, I find it more forgivable now that I'm older. Whereas at the time, I did think it was just that you're doing tombs wrong. I don't know. I think they look better in attack. Sorry. <gasps> wow. <laughs> if, you can over to, to, if you want tin foil, that's tomb of the Cybermen for you. So. <laughs> they look more like chalets, don't they? In their time. <laughs> <laughs> But if you were actually entombing, a, entombing yourself for a while, you would go for a chalet rather than... Yeah, a, yeah. Rather than <laughs> <laughs> Particularly, I mean, the Cybermen are six foot tall. Why were they getting into those times? I've never thought of this before. Yeah. Room for a little, like, day's launch, you know? Yeah. TV, yeah. You know? yeah. Kitchen and toilet area. <laughs> kitchen area. So, are we ready to move on from this one bloodbath of horror to uh, to a much lighter story uh, <laughs> in the form of vengeance on Varoth? Keith, did you want to get the ball rolling on this one? Right, we have reality TV reaching its ultimate form. The population mind Zyton 7, which is apparently not very valuable for them, even though it powers all the time ships in the universe. Sil wants to buy it and has two... Uh, very nice muscled gentleman looking after him, though he has uh, Lofty from EastEnders doing it in real life, wafting a fan around on the um, cut scenes. Did you see that in the background? It was uh, it was that like this fan was just wafting the poor bloke's face every five seconds. Uh, the Doctor and Perry uh, meet a nice shirtless uh, Jason Connery, and they get lots of horrible things happening to them. Somebody takes a, sh- um, a nice swim in some acid, and then it all ends unhappily ever after. <laughs> Is this story about the danger of letting stupid people vote? Yes. It really is, isn't it? I, I never really... I just, but I, I'm thinking about the uh, the Tory leadership election right now, and it's just, it is basically that. It's, uh, it's, um, it, it, has, it has a great... It's a really good political drama in some senses. Um, and voting for television democracy is sort of like well ahead of its time, wasn't it? I mean, essentially, like Love Island, God knows what. That's exactly what people do. Give it a few years. Yeah, it mirrors what Russell T Davis did, didn't he? Like, like sticking Big Brother in at the end of uh, mm. uh, the Parting of the Ways and uh, Bad Wolf as well. Yeah, and there was there was a long time. Somebody tweeted this. I'll find the tweet and retweet it because it really took me back. There was a long time when season twenty two was was very much out of fashion. It's maybe maybe it's not been a very fashionable season, but it, but um, but people did people used to say Vengeance on Varos was the one really good story because it's got an important message. And I, and I love all of season twenty two. But there was a time when when it when Vengeance on Varos would would always be the top rated Collins story because it, it had a message mm. and it was it was it had something to say. And you can't argue with that. Although it's not got the best rebels that we've ever had. Um, but oh, just wait until Time Lash. <laughs> yeah. um, 
It certainly doesn't have the best vehicles ever, because, I mean, they could literally walk away from all the cars. That's on. right. <laughs> yeah. What has the best villain of um, uh, that? Because, I mean, Sill is brilliant. I mean, excellent yeah. play. Yeah, and it's amazing that, for, for, although it's funny that this is a season that has lots of callbacks to the past, but it also has, what, of, um, we've got Sill, and then next week we've got somebody else turning up who are of the very few 1980s Doctor Who characters to get brought back again. I think there's Glitz and the Mara are the only other ones I can think of, apart from Sill and the Rani, who uh, who, who get, a, get a return visit. Yeah, I think I've... Not the Plasma. No. No. <laughs> the plasmatons. Oh no, yeah, they were dropped due to uh, contractual issues. I mean, the other thing I thought of. I mean, it does have its challenges, though. I mean, twenty minutes in, we're still in the TARDIS. So if that yeah. had been episode one of twenty-five minutes, <laughs> you know, it, and on the version, even longer in the TARDIS. If you've got even more scenes, you're looking at the. Oh, console. There. I didn't watch that. <laughs> stuff. If you watch the extended version, even more console room. And I did that twice on this set. The only thing, and it's not really the fault of the set, it's my fault for being inattentive, but I sat down and watched all of Vengeance on Virus and then looked at the next disc and it was Vengeance on Virus Extended Edition. Yes, exactly. I was like, oh, I would have watched that first. And then when I put, um, uh, which is the other one that hasn't extended, when I put Revelation of the Daleks in, I just pressed play all, which I don't normally do. And if, I, if I'd only had gone to episode menu first, I would have seen it was episode one, extended episode one. But some of the, it's extended by about 30 seconds. So it's not. Okay. I, I noticed that when I, I, I noticed that afterwards, and I thought, oh, I can't be asked. Um, I'll save it. Well, I, ju- I just don't like the when it's VHS time coded or something. It's like, nah, I'll, you know, I'll only it's a nice it. job of that. Though. They sort of just blurred it out slightly, so it's not. Okay. You haven't got sort of like the horrible numbers now. You just sort of got a little sort of blurred bit at the bottom of the screen now, so they've hidden it quite nicely. Yeah, they did that first with Ghostlight, didn't they? With the extended Ghostlight on uh, season twenty-six. Didn't watch the extended one. Oh, <laughs> McCoy. <laughs> They're the best stories ever. <laughs> <laughs> now let's not dig up the, the battles of 1987 and <laughs> all over again. Because he, I, yeah, I've admitted it before. For quite a while, Sylvester McCoy was not my doctor. They, tagged, they took my favourite doctor away and replaced him with a clown. It it does it, it partially succeeds. I think it, it succeeds very well. I think it. It's it's nothing too sort of, I guess it is quite on the nose. But there's so many different bits to it, which watching it again, um, several years later, it just sort of resonated. There were like with the the execution, they make it a religious execution, so mm. the population believe that this is the right thing to do, and it's okay because, um, you know, there are priests there and everything. Um, and then the the final sort of sign off, the final bit being Martin Jarvis. Um, addressing people in their homes, you know, directly, uh, and just leaving it like that. And they, you know, Ken Masters and whatever her name is, Sheila, are like, um, you know, we're free. And that, you know, that, that's the, the sort of takeaways from this. Not the, to me, it's not the acid baths or whatever. It was just... Um, it's such a good uh, ending. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I want to talk about ever so quickly is... Um, some of the fun Mark Ayres is having with the 5.1 is there's one, there's one part where Syl is eating his marshmallows or whatever, and he throws it across the room and it lands on the right rear speaker. Uh, (laughs) It's, it's just little touch like that. I loved it. Um, There's, there's not, it's not like a fully immersive kind of soundscape, but there's a few things in there. 
that uh, he's had some fun with. So, <laughs> yeah, it's good. I um, don't know if you've ever seen it, but, but um, the film that, sorry, the, the TV movie that sort of inspired this, um, Nigel Neal's Year of the Sex Olympics from the late 60s. Yeah. <laughs> what? Which I think you can actually watch on YouTube. I think it's, uh, it's uploaded it's, and it's, it's on there. Yeah. Oh, great. And, and yeah, it, it's got had a DVD release now because it wasn't available for years and years. It only came out a couple of years ago. And it's so disturbing. It's basically, so he, Nigel Neal did a, a TV adaptation of 1984 in the 50s. And then in the, in the late 60s, he did kind of his own take on it, except it's a world where rather than it being an impressive, uh, oppressive tyranny that's subjugating everyone, everyone is just watching telly. And the TV is, it starts out, the TV is just sex. It's just constant porn. And it's almost done as a bit comedic at first. And food fights. Yes, yes, because then they try to introduce comedy because the um, yeah the uh, the ratings aren't are going down and it keeps cutting to these really disturbing images of the faces of the viewers just glaring and the people trend you know swinging sixties type people who are actually running the TV shows are actually really scared they're going to lose their viewers so in their desperate attempts to get more viewers they make it that they try more and more things and it gets increasingly brutal and horrific and then it has an ending that's absolutely still just mortifyingly harrowing so yeah check that out it's uh, if you want cheering up after watching uh, after watching <laughs> this it, it i read that it was the um it wasn't actually the controversial acid bath sequence that got the worst appropriate at the bbc it was the hanging sequence mm. i can imagine that actually because that is really copyable i mean yeah people yeah. can do that i mean very few people actually have an acid bath <laughs> I hope very few people actually have an acid bath, whereas that is, I mean, the rules are against violence on TV is that is not meant to be uh, able to be imitated. And really, that could have been. So they, I, I, think that's, I hate to say it, they may have had a point on that. But it's a really good scene. That's the problem, yeah. because you know yeah, it's yeah, fake. They, they yeah. did actually break the rules of that. But I, th- I think that's because, obviously, the acid bath sequence, yeah, it, it, it could be seen as like quite graphic. But then you've got that kind of like tensional either with the very Bond kind of like snip that the Sixth Doctor says at the end. Oh, yeah, don't mind if I, I won't join you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very Connery Bond kind of like line that he says. And I think the reason why probably the hanging scene doesn't like get away with it is because it doesn't have any like flippant line at the end of it. It is quite, you know, like you say, graphic and could be easily copied copyable you know by uh you know young kids watching the program hmm. just thought of what colin could have said he could have gone let's not keep people hanging around <laughs> <laughs> have you seen this a, um in austin powers there's a bit where he gets a henchman and shoves him into an acid bath and it boils his head off <laughs> and, and and then he does a joke and he, and to uh, to what's the name um elizabeth is it elizabeth hurley elizabeth yeah. hurley in the first yeah. one yeah, and, yeah. 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 the great uh, in the second one he does the same guy <laughs> the second one <laughs> her increasing exasperation he, he, he's not gonna head, get ahead in business with that attitude and things like that this guy whose head he's just boiled off um, <laughs> but the uh, vengeance on virus got there first well, the amount of stabbings in this series they seriously would not get away with that nowadays either would they i mean that's seriously to do though i mean I mean the, the the stuff we watch these days is 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 way more graphic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, my lad's twelve years old and he's he's just getting into like kind of like the the stage where he's discovering horror films. At the weekend, we watched the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and you know, he wasn't phased by it at all because mm. I think half the time he's probably already seen stuff that's probably worse or equal to that. 
in what would be your standard 12A rated film that you can like go to the cinema and see, you know. So we have become quite disenfranchised from it all, like, you know, from that kind of violence. It probably was quite, you know, shocking in its day and controversial, but compared to in today's light, I don't think it's, it, you bat an eyelid at it. Oh. Yeah, yes, yeah. and, and whatever it's what the, the tabloids are currently whipping up a fear about, isn't it? That, that is the thing that the BBC always has to react to. Yeah, well, at the time, I mean, Philip Martin like said that the it was the big controversy over um, video nasties, wasn't it? That mm-hmm. kind of like inspired him to the fact, you know, and obviously they do sell these kind of like torture videos, uh, you know, around the galaxy, you know, and they're they're a good earner for us, I think. Um, um, Martin Jarvis's um, character says at one point, you know, so it's kind of like a play on that, isn't it? Give the public what they want. Got it. Martin Jarvis is maybe one of the good guys too. Everybody is horrible. <laughs> yeah, but, yes, because there's that moment where Perry is just, for a moment she thinks that he's quite nice and then he says something to her like, you know, we'll, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll execute you later because we'll get better ratings or something. And uh, and she's uh, she's appalled that even, even lovely Martin Jarvis is a psychopath on, on this planet. First, before we move on, we've got to do our favourite death from uh, Vengeance on Varos. Uh, so, on the count of three, one, two, three, acid bath. Acid bath. Oh, see, yeah. There we go. Was that unanimous? Was it? Was it unanimous? Yeah. Wandering God. I like the bloke who just walks into a laser beam. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> oh, yeah. Just had enough. It's not this for a while. He sees it. He doesn't care. He walks into it. He vanishes. <laughs> number UK number one at the time of this is um, Foreigner with "Do You Want to Know What Love Is?" I think that's, that's a it. song that the people of Varos probably could associate with. <laughs> I didn't buy that. <laughs> and it was followed in number the number one spot by two absolute scene stealers with incredible hair. Um, who just uh, really camped it up to everyone's great entertainment. Um, but enough about enough about Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon. Let's talk about <laughs> Anthony Ainley and uh, and Kate O'Mara. Are we gonna are we gonna do it in the uh, in the accent? <laughs> hey, hey, man, it's Mark and the Ronnie. Yeah, yeah you, you've got the lead awesome. on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Mark of the Rani, we've got the debut script of um, Chris Chibnall's nemesis, Pip and Jane Baker. <laughs> <laughs> Who have a history of obviously writing for uh, sci-fi shows. Obviously, they wrote for Space 1999. I think they wrote for UFO and a few other Jerry Anderson shows as well. Uh, and some other kids' TVs um, shows. And, um, you know, everybody slags Pip and Jane Baker off. But I think this this is a cracking story. Is that received um, wisdom? Because I, I really don't think people really do slag them off. Oh, at the time they did, yeah. yeah. Well, at, the, at the time, yeah, yeah. And she poured over yeah. them in the day, yeah. Absolutely, they were, they were torn. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Chris Tibnall, much to his shame, in open air in 1986. In a ghastly suit. Also, like, critique their writing, saying that, you know, it could have been written better. <laughs> I mean... There's no, there's no learning, there's no learning really in that for anyone. You still can't write as good as Bloody Pippin. <laughs> this one's got a timeless feel to it. I think you could almost drop almost any 
it drops into almost any season of Doctor Who. Yeah, it's a, it's a big shame that uh, a lot of eighties Doctor Who doesn't play to the strengths of like what the BBC could do at the time. You know, one of my other favourite um, series is The Visitation. You know, in season nineteen because it plays to the BBC strengths by being like you know utilising all that kind of like period drama stuff that the BBC can do at the drop of a hat and. You know, it's really refreshing to see that done. And I think that's one of the reasons why it looks so good as well. And and also they were benefited by the uh, cancellation of some filming on another Mm. TV series. And they were able to do twice as much location filming in a brilliant location for this story. It looks good on on the remaster as well. Oh yeah, it looks fantastic, doesn't it? it really does. Yeah, and the music comes together really well, especially because it was a late yeah. a later edition after the sad uh, death of the uh, the person who was originally doing it. The, uh, um, the the score we got in said though turned out to be, I think, just another absolutely spectacular one that just immediately takes you into uh, him, Jonathan Gibbs, and it just immediately takes you into the story. Whenever I hear there's the tiniest bit of this music and the little nods to the New World Symphony from the uh, the bread advert that was always on TV at the time. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's yeah. a bit hovis at times, but he really does. Yeah. But, but sort of, not, and, yeah. And it, but yeah, and he hits an, an exact halfway point between the New World, New World Symphony and the Doctor Who theme. It's like, da, 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 and I just think it's really clever. Last stop on round will be Omar Pegatis' place. It was like taking bread to the top of the world. It was a grand ride back, though. I knew Baker at Avcatlon, and doorsteps of our always ready. There's wheat German that loaf, he'd say. Get it inside your boy, and you'll be going up that hill as fast as you come down. Though this still has many times more wheat germ than ordinary bread. It's as good for you today as it's always been. And the rest as well. I'm not just not just in it for three notes. I think with the Pip and Jane Baker, people will often say, this dialogue isn't very realistic. Um, which is like, I don't think they're shooting for realism somehow. <laughs> I think that, that, that it's going to be heightened. It's a- I think they argued as well. They were writing for Time Lords. They wanted three Time Lords to be sort of a bit more highfalutin than the uh, Hoi Polloi, so to speak. Good point. Yeah, yeah. They are these people are aristocrats. They're not just going to um, to chat like like everyday ordinary people from the north, which is how everyone else in the, in the episode talks, of course. Were they from the north though? Really? <laughs> they had to go. They had to go. Can I ask a question? If you were suddenly exposed to um, a toxic gas. Um, how would you describe it to your friends and what to do? Would um, you not do, would you not go, oh, look out, it's dihydrosulfonide three, you know, uh, or would you just say, mustard gas, get back? It's, it's just like, it's ridiculous. It's like, what? That is pure <laughs> Pip and Jane going, I know, let's get the doctor to uh, describe its organic chemistry. It's got to be educational as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. Use it. <laughs> yeah you've remembered that, Colin, all these years, and I'm sure you've got that exactly right. And so now, if you <laughs> need to make, some other, if you need to make, some I, it's not gas. even in my notes. I just, thought, <laughs> what is it? Uh, yeah, I've stopped making mustard gas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do love Doctor Who in the Woods. Doctor Who in the Woods is always a hit. Yes. Uh, like the visitation that I just mentioned, and uh, we've been there. We've been places. We've been to lots of yeah, Doctor Who Black Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, we had a, we had a, a post lockdown celebratory visit there not too long ago. It was great. 
and and I've been, I've been so that you confused me slightly there because I was like I've I've been to Blister's Hill where they filmed Mark of the Rani and I, yes, I was no, 10. it's not. I was ten and you weren't there. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're right. Any... You hang out in woods together, you know, quite a <laughs> <laughs> Any Doctor Who or Blake Seven woods in the autumn where it's a bit foggy is mm, cool. Yeah. With a derelict uh, kind of like building there as well. That's right, a, a metal wall in a rock face, <laughs> a metal door. But you've I also think... got the debut of uh, Kato Mara as the Rani. Mm. The reveal is great. Yeah. Just pulling off that mask, standing up straight, and then starting to slag people off. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I I think her double act with uh, with with the master is is just wonderful. I, I would I know people complain that he doesn't get to do enough, which particularly Anthony Angley complained that he didn't get to do enough, probably. But um, but they work so well together. Her being just put upon and, and finding him annoying. It's a bit like almost I don't know Servalan and Travis in a, in, in a, another series of which we're quite familiar. Um, to some extent, not not exactly, but um, this this yeah, there's shades of that. And when and when when Colin Baker gets in on it too, the three of them sparring, I just I just it's just lyrical. I, I, well, literally in terms of the words. Plus, she's got a brilliant TARDIS console as well. Oh, that is just yeah, a, love it. it. I mean, my god. <laughs> yeah, it's so eighties in a different way to the to the way that the Doctor's is, and uh, uh, if only it hadn't warped in storage. I wonder if they just binned it, didn't they? Don't you? Yeah, because usually you just got the same console but painted black, didn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Master's TARDIS. <laughs> for years. For year, once I, f- I found that out when I was quite young. And for years I thought, that must mean every time we see the inside of the Master's TARDIS or the Doctor's TARDIS, it's getting a little bit smaller because they're putting another layer of painting <laughs> it black and then they're painting it white. And, then, and it was quite a long time until someone went to me, no, Pete, they, they washed the paint off. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that would make more sense, actually. Perry uh, in this one. People, another criticism that people often point at Perry, unfairly I think, is that um, we don't get enough of her botany. Uh, I think that's what they said uh, because she's she's yeah, she can't shut up about it in this one in particular. Um, she's she's going full Greta as they're walking along the hedgerows quite rightly, but she does speak in her weird way. I, you know, in, in my time, my generation, in the way just in the way that a nineteen-year-old wouldn't. But I just think that's because Perry's an odd an interesting person and that's how she speaks that's how i've rationalized it uh i don't think pip and jane baker had ever met an american teenager i suspect <laughs> or if they had this, Nicola Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh, this is the point where well we'll come to the bonus features won't we but yeah is this yes, the point where is. she's she is still pretending to everyone who knows her that she's <laughs> really american well, I think the way she describes it in the Matthew Sweet um, documentary, I think mm. season 22 had more or less like finished filming, hadn't it, before she even confessed to, was it Colin when they it's went round? Colin at first, yeah. Yeah, it's Colin first. Like, oh, actually, by the way, I'm not American. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I had absolutely no idea. No. I just I had no idea. I thought she just was hired, said, can you do an American accent? Yes, did it. And then not most of the other time she didn't. And it's just amazing. The stress what? that she was under the whole time, fear of being found out. And they're going on time. And, and she's like, uh, and they're asking her, oh, are you, you know, from America? It's like, oh, no, I'm your nationality. And she's doing it with, you know, the house stress. Because it's like, if I get found out, I'm never going to work again, do you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the the other things, I mean, I just found it. I just found it, yeah, the best of the three interviews, I think. But the 
John Nathan Turner said, well, you can't tell people you're married. Mm. And basically just controlling her. Really, yeah. really creepily. Yeah. Really creepily and really unnecessarily. Um, in the, Re I think it's in the Revelation of the Daleks commentary, the new one, Alexi Sell just was say, said to her, uh, he, he got her to say how much she's being paid and stuff. And the, and the, and it, uh, I can't quite remember now, but it was pretty much a pittance. Hmm. Um, and uh, they were just not treating her pretty badly. The famous door in um, uh, Trial of a Time Lord, the door was paid more than she was, wasn't it? I mean, that's a, right. a famous thing. Well, she describes that thing where, like, basically he, he's asking her all about, like, what clothes have you got to wear? And bring them along for the press conference and well you know well i haven't got any tight fitting clothing and, and, and all that kind of thing and he's mm. he, obviously he's looking at like what's gonna appeal to the dads mm. you know um you know when they open the paper and see a photograph of the new doctor Who companion announced from a gay man's perspective of what heterosexual yeah man be, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then she, she says it later on doesn't she when um I think it was after she'd left. She said, "Oh, you look very nice." When they'd met at a convention or something, and she, yeah, because I've I dressed myself, you know, and a little kind of like you know, Barb, I was like, like, "You didn't dress me for once," you know. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a bit uncomfortable where she describes the whole thing of walking through television center and like, virtually like at every like third door that she passes through, somebody like pats her on the bum or tries yeah. to squeeze her ass. It's awful, you know. Obviously, you're aware that you know that's what things were like back then, but it doesn't make it sound like any more comfortable when you're listening to it, you know, in today's life. And the business with the pantomime was really, I mean, she didn't want to do it, so she got punished into basically accepting it. Yeah. Didn't she? I mean, that yeah. was really quite sinister. Yeah, I think he, James, he seemed to he has this had this idea of her as his prodigy. The protege, sorry, <laughs> get that right. Jainty had this idea of her as his prodigy. <laughs> I'm not sure it's prodigy anyway. Or oh, protege, protege. They're two different words, aren't they? No, I'm not. Where are Pip and Jane Baker when I need them? I don't think it's that. I think it's um, he was using every opportunity he could to get press and ratings and hmm. to manipulate her into being desired i'm not saying anything yeah. about your husband and wearing all this skimpy clothing um and to enhance his image as a result that's pretty awful i think also he was getting terrified of the fact all his income was around doctor who so he was like trying to create job opportunities outside of doctor who and ironically always involved doctor who in them so i mean he, he tried to create a pantomime which was sort of like separate from his main job but filled it with doctor who actors and forced them into doing it they did like it, like want to do things in America. And it turned out to be they would be Doctor Who conventions, and he would do TV over there based on it. I think he was like half trying to get out of the show and half sort of like uh, being trapped in it. Mm. Didn't excuse what he did, obviously. But... Yeah, I mean, I don't think he did himself any favors because I, I think it's in one of the later um, documentaries. Um, Andrew Cartmill said that I think during season twenty-five or something, he was the last BBC staff producer like on, on the mm. payroll. Mm. And you know, because every everyone else had gone freelance by that point, and he kind of like was absolutely insulted by the fact that he got offered Bergerac, you know, which was a top-rated show um, in the eighties. And you know that, you know, if JNT had his like actual, you know, 
head screwed on right, you would have seen that there was his natural outlet to like leave Doctor Who behind. And yeah, perhaps the show might have got cancelled a couple of years earlier than what it did if he'd done that, but perhaps it might have saved his career, you know, because he did get pigeonholed as, as basically just the Doctor Who man, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, and it's such a shame that we haven't got him to, to, to get because as his side of the story would be fascinating as it always is when somebody's uh, a complicated a complex character put it mildly because other people talk about him being wonderful at other times and, and other times very much not yeah the richard marston book um life and times of jnt is a very interesting and at sometimes a bit uh, not the best not the most nice read um, because as he was with nicola sometimes when she refused the panto, he could be pretty uh, nasty to people if they said no to him. It's what's and all. Sarah Hellings' direction. This is the only time she worked on the show, and it's because she was so bloody busy. It was the only time JNT managed to, to get her on the books because she was doing everything. She was doing Howard's Way. Mm. Uh, Lovejoy and Sherlock Holmes is and uh, just just all sorts. I think she's one of the and and she turns up on the locations uh, bonus feature as well, doesn't yes. she? Which is another yes. uh, one of the real gems in this collection. Uh, it's really nice having them talking about that and and that she makes the time to to still do it. I don't know if she gets invited onto Juliet Bravo documentaries, um, so it must be good to have that one part of your work <laughs> uh, re- remembered. Now, there aren't that many killings in this one, but let's see. Has everybody got? I'll try. I'll try with my mayhem-inducing format. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's all try and say the same thing at the same time and see if it's unanimous or not. Uh, who has the best death in Mark of the Rani? Three, two, one. The dog who... turned into a tree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I heard the dog. Who said the dog? <laughs> Did I hear the dog? You did, yes. <laughs> that is a harrowing moment, it's true. I was trying to think of how I phrase it, but it's the guy who unconvincingly CSOs down the mine shaft. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. That is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, did you say Pete Luke, who turns into a tree? We both said Luke, yeah. We, we did both yeah. say Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a death, though? He's not dead. He became even more wooden. He's alive for hundreds of years. He's still alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Branch. I've doubled his life expectancy. What is it that she says? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we t- is that branch, yeah, let- let's assume it was his arm. Uh, Piff and Jane Baker. <laughs> <laughs> Grab onto it, Perry. <laughs> um. <laughs> And all of those, and they did, the, the Rani left a lot of those mines in that, down in Dingley Dell. Um, so, so, so he may have been joined by other people as the years went by. <laughs> Find a lot of stray dogs there with no owners. <laughs> <laughs> Got more than you bargain for if you go dogging down there. <laughs> Anthony Ainley lurking with a tissue compression illuminator could be in there. Uh, and then the cast of this one. Uh, but this is in a, in a whole season where every every story's got several standout cast members um of course we've got kate o'mara but also terence alexandra bergerac connection yeah, yeah. Uh, as lord ravensworth he, he was the sort when he's in it it just makes you think well back then anyway it made me think oh they've got a, a proper actor in this he's in the sort of shows that mum and dad watch and now he's doing a doctor who i'm thinking that 
Yeah, there's no sitcom or comedy stars. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no one's cast against type in this, are they? They're all um, and the, no Beryl uh, Reed's playing uh, a uh, starship captain. <laughs> I did once have a Twitter mission to cast Beryl Reed in every Doctor Who story, and in this one, I made her um, Baroness Ravensworth, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> had her as the uh, the Lady of the Manor. He's a he's a real historical figure, by the way. Somebody told me on Twitter. I didn't know that. George Stevenson gets all of the. Um, on the credit for, for being the celebrity and they did the cheat with the cliffhanger on this one which really wound me up because at that point when i was taping i was pausing and i was editing out the credits live pausing it at the just before the theme music started when the next episode comes out comes around have it on record mode release the pause and try and, and i got quite good at it but in this one they edited george stevenson running through the woods back into the while the doctor's rolling along on his trolley which you didn't see at, at the end of part one but at the start of part mm. two you do so, so there's the old trick of the uh, Archeo Republic series yeah. uh, serials that always used to do that, didn't they? Yeah. So moving off into maybe hotter climbs than uh, than, than Iron Bridge, um, we're heading off to the first sort of six-part story for a very long time. Colin, you you, you put your name down. I to thought have. by hotter climbs you meant you know the UK in July 2022. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, The Two Doctors. I absolutely love it. I think it is, I don't think it's too long. It has so much going for it. It's brilliant classic Robert Holmes, of course I had to say that. But fucking hell, Pat is good. Uh, he's not Mr. B. He's just absolutely, you know, I'd seen him in The Five Doctors um, and then seeing him in this, it was like, oh, there are other incarnations of The Doctor before Tom Baker, you know. Um and I think it has a lot to say about uh, scientists, you know, doing things because they can and not, not because they should, which is a theme on lots of things at the moment. It has terrific villains, Shokai, Chassini, not really the Santarans. Um, <laughs> uh, they do that bit. It's, it's just got, yeah, I've got so much, you know, little bits to say about it, but um, mm. it. uh and it has a little bit of a, it has a good message at the end, one of which I think Robert Holmes, Nicola Bryant, and I share, which is let's be vegetarians right up until we eat fish fingers with custard again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's one of the one of the mythbuster things about this. Robert Holmes isn't actually a vegetarian, but oh really? Oh, he would. Yeah, I sorry, I resign. But he, but he was. He had empathy. He, he was a good writer. Yeah, he, but he felt there was a very strong um, ethical case for being vegetarian. So he, so he decided right. to make it. Yeah. yeah, they make that, and they do just go into it. Uh, like Shockeye is saying, "Oh, these primitive creatures don't feel the, the pain the same way as we do." Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favourites too, and um, because of the, and I think this does really use th- those long first episodes. I think it was it, right. Nobody ever has a good word to say about Eric Bloody Sayward, but I will say at least I do. The, he, he did something good because he did something quite radical with these 45 minute episodes. This idea of instead of just saying every Doctor Who story is 90 minutes long, but now you get oh, usually 90 minutes long, but now you're getting it in bigger chunks. He, he did this thing of instead we're going to have a part one that's twi- that, that spends a lot longer building it up. And it's not to everyone's taste. And, it, and yeah, it, it does. It, it gets a bit farcical in some stories where the Doctor doesn't get there <laughs> for ages. But 
um, they were experimenting with something new and trying to make it to a different tempo. And, and uh, I think they, exp- I, I, I'm sure they must have expected a later time slot to go with the longer episodes. It must have been a real shock for them to be put on at like ten past five or something. Five twenty, I think, something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, um, which really was the one of the earliest time slots it had, had for a long time for a, a, a series that was the most um, unchild. Well, well, ad, I don't want to say adult in content because that, that sounds a bit pretentious always. Because, but, but you know what I mean, violent and and uh, with such themes uh, throughout it, uh, feels more like a, an eight o'clock show than a than a five o'clock show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because um, some of the Davidson ones were going out at seven thirty, weren't they? Well, it's interesting what you say about the 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 opening parts of these stories because yeah, I think it does work in some of them. Like I think Attack. Part one is brilliant at building up the story. Um, Two Doctors Part One is absolutely excellent. That excellent that whole mystery uh, when they're on the the space station, and the fact that that it's then revealed that it's Jamie who's stalking them again. The BBC lighting is kept to a, a minimum. You know, it's really well shot. Um, it's, probably gets a little bit too bright in in episodes two and three when they then move to Spain, but. Um, it works better in those than it does, say, in Vengeance and Varos, which takes far too long for the Doctor and Perry um, to get involved in the story. And the same with, you know, Revelation of the Daleks is, is a great story, but the biggest fault I find with that is the fact that the Doctor and Perry ha- are hardly involved in that part one, you know, and they don't really get involved in the story until they, you know, till part two comes along. So in some instances it works and in some instances it doesn't, but it's the first year that they are doing this format and season 23 was written in the same 45-minute episode length format as well, but then obviously the cancellation came. So I think they would have ironed all those like things out by the time they got to season 23 had the uh, Michael Grade not come along. Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine Vengeance on Varos making a really good one-episode modern Who sort of Capaldi era say story. Um, it, that's one of the ones that 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 would fit that really, really easily. I think the other the other thing about this story is both the music and the sound design. Um, I think it is just the Peter Howell at his best yeah. with Spanish guitar and the deepest, darkest, ethereal sounding synths, particularly for Shock High. Um, and then this, this like the 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 station sort of breathing, uh, you know, where, when they first land on there, it's hugely atmospheric. Yeah, and this restraint, the bit where the Doctor thinks the universe has ended and um, yeah. uh, giving that little speech, the music, it, it, it really holds off. It doesn't, it just lets him have that moment oh, just, just with the words uh, and then can contrast with the um, the battle bit at the moment. I just, I remember shivers going up my spine when you saw those Sontaran spaceships on screen for the first time. And it wasn't particularly because I was a mate, I was excited about Sontarans. It was the music. The music is brilliant, did you? It just I just felt like I was watching an amazing space battle. And actually, I'm just watching three balls spinning on screen, but it was so exciting. <laughs> yeah. And Jacqueline Pierce, of course, completely sells the menace from that very first 
scene. Yes. And I, I was, um, because, you know, you and I, Pete, have also seen something called Blake Seven. Oh, yeah. May occasionally podcast about it. Um, I was thinking how, you know, she's playing a villain again, but how different she is as Cessini. She's so um, restrained and refined. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to have seen her going a bit more bonkers at the end, but uh, she does. She does it so um, calculated. Yeah, yeah, and and because Cassini, you know, isn't the commander of all. Well, she is, but but because she, she but you know, she, she's commanding things, but she, because she's got to lay low, sort of thing, she's doing it from behind the scenes. That gives her. She, she's not like Servalan, shouting out her orders. Mm, um, yeah, yeah, until until the very end when she starts to lose her grip, and then that I mean the the, the and the final scenes of her um, losing control to her to her instincts. Uh, that Dastari thought he had intelli- he had uh, raised her out of. Uh, yeah, and the way he looks disgusted. Played. At that yeah, if and they haven't that, that whole again the the mad scientist thing. He's not mad at all. It's just how you know he took a lowly Andragon. He didn't take a you know, a, a different species, the one that just wasn't obsessed with food and instinct. Um, he decided to go with a lowly sort of androgam and uh, enhance them. Um, it makes him a, feel a little bit like sort of Tyrell from Blade Runner or, you know, the whole Anthony Hopkins from Westworld. Uh, just mm. the whole, what can I do? What can I, what can I do in, in the name of science, not in the name of doing the right thing? I have a question. How long is Jamie on the station alone for? Because <laughs> he t- he seems like a, 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 he's yeah. lost a lot. Several hours at least. Several uh, hours. Very <laughs> quickly. Yeah. He's built himself a nest, smeared his face in <laughs> monkey oil, and uh, forgot and, how uh, to speak. Yes, uh, and and uh, dead man's clothes, and making a real nuisance of himself to to any passing people, to put it mildly. Uh, to put it very delicately, so, so yeah, that isn't quite specified. But the the fact that they're on that space station and the sets are so dark and echoey and cold after it seemed so big and and, and uh, spacious earlier. Uh, I even love I love the guy. Uh, oh no, I was about to give a spoiler away for my favourite death, and, and we'll we'll do that in a bit. <laughs> okay. Actually, no, let's do it now. Let's do our favourite. Let's do it now because story. We, we want to know now. Yeah. Uh, okay. The listeners perhaps don't, but we do. No, they probably don't. But I want to get it off my chest. That's what, it, that's what this is really about. <laughs> so on the count of three, we'll make a cacophony and then we'll try and pick it out. Uh, one, two. Three. The guy runs in and shouts. Oscar Vochevi. <laughs> it's not. I do. Oscar Vochevi does have a magnificent death, which I think people much malign uh, because it, the, the just the, the fact that the, that hammy actor gets to do a hammy Hamlet as he dies after some people have stuffed their faces with ham. Yeah, because they weren't paid. They weren't paid. Well, wait, they're still serving. <laughs> I like when Peter Davidson said though that it'd been actually funny if he'd actually not died at the end of that speech. And I thought, now I watch it, I think actually that would have been better if he'd have sort of like then his eyes only opened. And oh no, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would that would be good. Actually. His bottle of flesh wound, but um, yeah, the guy who runs in on the on Trout and Doctor and uh, and Dastari and goes Professor, and then just gets shot down uh, from an off an out of sight. Santarin, oh just, yeah, 
that, that that's all we see of that battle yeah. and yet in my mind that battle was immense in, in my 12 year old mind that battle was immense and, and exciting and i was given exactly enough information about it to, to, to know that i would have thought a jacobite would recognize that sound I, I looked Jacobite up in the dictionary. Oh, good. That's all good. <laughs> I, was, I thought, is it, is it rude? <laughs> it sounds rude. It sounds rude. Yeah. Uh, but no. Um, Does Perry mouth uh, asshole at some point? <laughs> oh, when the doctor patronizes her and pats her on the head. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sure I will never forgive and, myself. And there are things, there are bits in the script that do that are hangovers from when it was originally written to be set in America. Because the original idea was that when we have both doctors keep criticising their assistants for speaking in slang, the, um, that appalling mongrel dialect. And of course, that, that there's a theme for this for this story, um, ideas of purity and things like that. Um, but um, and then, but then when they got to America, Perry was going to be the doctor was going to not understand the slang that people were using, and Perry was going to have to keep explaining to him or translating him to the Americans. It actually could have come, that could have hit the buffers in many ways if it had been a bit naff, but um, or, or, or a bit problematic. But um, that's that apparently that's why all the teasing about languages still is still there because that was a big part of the original version of the script. Well, that was the reason for the, uh, the, the the food analogies as well, because it was meant to be set in New Orleans, wasn't it? Which is quite a, uh, you know, a, you know, refined, um, you know, area of America that doesn't just like fry all, all its food and, you know, and <laughs> stick it in a burger bun. People might have been a bit curious why Nicola Bright needed a visa as well at that point. <laughs> That's true. That would have definitely... <laughs> she probably dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah. She would have had to just come out as not being American on the plane on the way there. <laughs> <laughs> that that whole era could make such a good drama series, but it could it could either be done as a complete farce or it could be done as a as a um, harrowing tale of trauma. Uh, but then I guess get Mark Gatiss to write it. Oh yes, <laughs> a follow up to Adventures in Space and Time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do we think of the Santara makeup? <laughs> didn't really hit but the heat well bless them they were just melting on their faces wasn't it apparently that's the reason we don't get a reveal of him taking his the reason we don't get a reveal let's go into the subtitle notes um the reason we don't get the reveal of him taking his head off is is taking his mask off to reveal his face under it uh is because uh, the director um moffat just said i can't i can't do that to these actors i can't make them put that rubber thing on and then make them wear a helmet as well because they're going to have to stand there for half an hour while we set the setup the shot up so uh, that was why uh, they just uh, they just sort of pop up, but I do like the idea of a Welsh Santar, and it took, I didn't realise recognise he was Welsh at first, but then when he starts saying Major Bar, I can't do the accent. Well, we've got Cockney Santar, and then the invasion of time. So yeah, they, they, they clone their bodies, and they're obviously tweaking it a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> these ones must have been heading to an even higher gravity planet, which is why they made them taller. Maybe they actually stretch depending on the gravity of the planet they're on. Maybe it's a bad batch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would explain a lot, actually. What did, well, so what did you think, Jason? Your question. Uh, yeah, they're a bit like, um, they're not as good as the uh, previous, like, uh, you know, makeup that we've seen. Um, and I think that part of it, because they look a little bit too plasticky, don't they? They don't look quite as natural as what they did do previously in the other Sontaran. Um episodes yeah and is it just the collars i mean obviously the whole thing's not exemplary it's but quite if, if fitting, collar, isn't it? yeah if the collar just fitted or was just attached to it it probably would all just gel a bit better 
the scene with um, uh, Shokai eating the rat seemed to be the thing that got the most complaints of anything this season. It just, it was, some people were just utterly disgusted by it. Yeah, fair enough. Points of view it's is quite graphic, though, isn't it? When you, when you yeah, watch it, it back, it's. It is, but I mean. And, uh, even Peter Davidson said something about it on oh, the yeah. behind the sofa thing, didn't he? Yeah. I'm just surprised because it's nobody's thinking that he's really eating a rat. So they know that it's just a fake rat, but it still just really disgusts people. You hear its death squeak. Yes. And it's full of plums, apparently. That's a plum yeah. he's eating. <laughs> and I can forgive okay we've got to go there season 6b why does Troughton talk about and, and he is in the script as, as for the other pre, as for the five doctors he's just called Dr Troughton and Colin's called Dr ba- Baker um, there's no sixth and second it's like but I think Robert Holmes did just forget that the second doctor mm. he got them he got him mixed up with the third didn't he yeah he um, just thought it was like what he did yeah but that gives us, it's fun for us to just have to fill in the blanks. We spend a lot of time doing that on Doctor Who, on your Doctor Who fan, don't we? And the new Big Finish season uh, 6B box sets of Triumph, so uh, it was worth it in the end. Fantastic. When did that one come out? I'm not, I'm not Recently, it's got uh, Trout and Son playing the role, and he's superb at it. He's really good. Tempting. Before we go to Time Lash, um, I've, also, I've just got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm flying my flag for Perry talking about botany. In this, when the Doctor says he controls the TARDIS by symbiosis, but by a symbiotic nuclei, Perry jumps up and says, oh, symbiosis, because she would have done that on her botany degree. So that's Perry's yeah, second bit. All this, all this, I don't know, it, it, it feels like she chirps up a bit of the time, but the Doctor is the one in Revelation of the Daleks that gets the flower and says, this can make a very good protein. That is exactly she kn- what Perry should have done. She notices it first. She does notice the flower when they're walking. Yeah, she but no, you're right. But flower, but she doesn't come up with a solution. No, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it is him. But then, hey, <laughs> he gets. To, that's the one thing he gets to do in Revelation of the Dark. We'll, <laughs> <get there. laughs> we'll get there in a bit. But uh, we shouldn't take that away from him. <laughs> but yeah, Colin. Um, so moving on to the next uh, story of the season, which is uh, Revelation of the Daleks. Um, <laughs> yes, sorry, yes, I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what I did there, thank you. We can do it quickly. <laughs> I think one of the funniest things I've seen for a long time is, is the behind the sofa on Time Lash for the Fifth Doctor crew watch, watching this. They are having a whale of a time watching Time Lash. I bet Peter's thinking, and I thought Warriors of the Deep was bad. <laughs> but yeah, but Janet, as soon as the uh, the Morlocks arrive, appears, Janet shouts, it's the Merka! It's their Merka! <laughs> and it's a story with um, characters in it who say things. Who we- did not give a shit about. <laughs> Who's going to make a case? Is anyone going to come to Time Lash's defence? I was very pleased at the time. I loved Time Lash at the time because I was terrible at picking the worst story. Duas always used to have a season poll, and I was always completely wrong. Don't forget, I am the person who voted Twin Dilemmas to my favourite story that year. And I've always got it hopelessly wrong. But this year, I knew that this one was the rubbish one, and I could vote it last, and I would be right, and I was. So I was thrilled to think I'm going to get it right this year. I will pick the worst story, and I am right. 
And I wasn't. Was it the tinsel that gave it away for you? <laughs> it was the bit where it was sort of like it, the doctor's walking around the Borad and the time is catching up and it's the chap's looking, H.G. Wells is looking down and he's walking and fading away and nothing's really happening. He's walking around and fading away. And I remember thinking, God, this is boring. I thought this will be the worst one. And I was right. To be fair, I got up until that point before I realised it was that bad. That's probably like <laughs> end of episode two, isn't it? So I'd survived the first episode without particularly twigging. But uh, by then I knew it was lame shit. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember hating it when I watched when it went out. Um, and yeah, Colin, just to mention, I, I've got a hands up here. I did once go on the uh, now defunct Who Trial podcast. Uh, off, oh, yeah, I, that's it. it that's was one of my first of. ever podcast appearances. And I went, I went in to, val- to valiantly defend um, Time Lash. Uh, I did resort to some dirty tricks uh, and possibly was not entirely sincere in some of the praise that I lavished upon it in my role as its uh, as its defence attorney. But um, I don't remember hating it when it was going out at all, particularly. But I didn't like, I thought the ending was a cop-out. It was that, I'll explain later. And mm. then it turns out, oh, the Borad's just got a clone of himself for no reason. But that was apparently in the original version. Underrunning, yes. <laughs> yeah. On the, but the, the cloning of the Borad bit apparently was a big thing in the original plot that then, that then got cut out. And so... That that's why it, but that's why it underran and so yeah. Um, yes, I, I was watching this and then uh, and then the the credits roll and it's like, oh, it's Pennant Roberts. I get it. I get it. Um, I just it's so inconse- inconsequential. At least the did you guys watch it with the new special effects? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was good in the time lash because you just can't see the tinsel. It's just this oh. distortion. Uh, so yeah. that was done. But, it's a, but then time lash without tinsel, is it like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is it like a Christmas cracker without a lame joke inside it? Isn't that what, isn't that part of the fun? If we didn't have time lash, we, you know, it's, it, it's got and a... Paul Darrow still there. And Paul Darrow is there. And boy, is he there. He, because if and if he wasn't doing what he does, it would just be utterly flat. Really boring. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, but him going completely over the top. Although that was him toning it down a bit, apparently, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Didn't, didn't JNT say to him, "You're doing Richard the Third in the style of Olivier or something." I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Olivier Olivier might have sued if um, that's probably if, if he was told that that was what it uh, reminded anyone of. It does have an excellent line in it where. Colin Baker turns around to, uh, to Darrow and just goes, "Oh, do shut up and go away, really quick." It's just like, just, just like, I think that's my only good bit in this. <laughs> now, I don't completely hate the robot. I think the robot is quirk. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> like your, your late eighties pastel colours before they happen. But it's like that David Bowie album, you know, where he's got <sighs> face all blue. <laughs> God, they should really talk to Shara's Jack about some good androids. Star Crash, yeah. Star Crash, what was that? Oh, it's a it's a cheesy Italian um, oh. rip off of Star Wars. Oh, that yeah. as Caroline Monroe and David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> YouTube it. Trust me, <laughs> it is it is as bad as it sounds. Well, as if um, the world didn't have enough uh, on its plate, uh, although um, Dead or Alive and You Spin Me Round Like a Record was soaring up the charts to number one while, the week, while this was on. You know, what wasn't soaring up the charts to number one while this was on, but did come out 
uh, on the day before Time Lash episode two, it was our very own Doctor in Distress, uh, which, I don't know, as a career move, releasing a record complaining about a decision your boss's boss has taken. Is never really gonna go never gonna do anyone any favours, is it? Yeah, I probably wouldn't I have a confession. I tried to watch it on the box set and I couldn't finish it. I got <laughs> and I literally had to turn it off. It's the first <laughs> defeated me, I couldn't watch it. Ian Levine wrote the lyrics, didn't he? Yeah. But Yosha claims that he wrote Attack oh, of the Squad as well, so I don't think either of them, I don't think he got any money out of either of them. Well, actually, no, that's, that's not fair because this was a charity record. And that is the yeah. reason Colin did it. Of course, um, he had his absolutely tragic family experience of losing his losing a child the year before. Um, and Col- Colin's interview is, um, I, I really like the fact that it, it isn't all about the cancellation because you must, and, and you know, did you really like your coat and that sort of thing? Because we've covered that and, and, and we know all about it. And to actually get his, his life story and his relationship with his mum and his dad uh, in the interview, I, I thought that was a, it's, you know, really, um, really moving and, and just really fills in a lot of his backstory just like the Nicola Bryant one does too you just re- you really get to know them as people in a way that it's weird having seen countless interviews with them both over the years there's loads of stuff in those in those interviews that I just never never came across before I hadn't realized how close he was um to the death of his son to actually starting on the show I, in my mind it was a further it was a, a lot greater distance so to think that he was dealing with that at the same time it, it, to deal with that horrific event in your life and then sort of like have to go to be into a rehearsal room and be up and jolly and pretend that the world's still going on. It shows his courage. Yeah, and uh, and it's not just a, a bit part or a supporting player. Mm. He's the lead actor, isn't he? So he has to like present himself to the whole like ensemble and be... A leading man, yeah on point all the time, you know, so that must have like weighed a, a huge challenge yeah. to him. But yeah, Matthew Sweet is brilliant at getting like just like um not just the the usual anecdotes out of uh the actors and, and the, the people that he interviews. Um I found it very similar to the one about Sophie Aldred on the season twenty six box set. Um because I found out loads of stuff about, you know, Colin Baker's early years and obviously, you know, he's he's his career especially running up to the brothers as well. You know, and obviously, you know, the things that he'd done, you know, cause you, you don't usually like hear that kind no. of stuff, do you? Uh, you know, he's a really, really good interviewer, Matthew Sweet. Yeah, we're so lucky that someone of that caliber is obviously a huge fan and 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 combines it with 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 his with his contacts and things. The uh, what do you think of the Michael Grade interview? Didn't watch it. <laughs> he let him off easily, but I love the fact he was totally unrepentant. You think he was like being paid to appear on a uh, a Doctor Who Blu-ray, and he was sort of like talking to Doctor Who fans. He might show a bit of contrition, but no, he was he was wonderfully unrepentant. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as much as Michael Gray comes across as a smug git, and he's always been a smug git, um, he comes across like that in every interview, even when he's not talking about Doctor Who. You know, reluctantly, you do kind of like agree with some of his points, and no, you I have don't. to realise it at the time. <laughs> um, it wasn't just Doctor Who that was taken off the air. There was no, quite a okay. few long-running shows that he, he got rid of completely just because... He thought they were old and tired, and you know. Yeah, that's true. We, yeah, we see it through a, um, a microcosm yeah. of just Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, he was just got rid of a load of old stuff because he just yeah. didn't. He just thought it, he didn't like it. 
Although I still don't agree with because Jonathan Powell, isn't it, on one of the other box sets, said that if a Russell T Davis had come along, we would have perhaps changed our minds. I don't think they would have. No. I think they were that intent on getting rid rid of the show that regardless if you know somebody like a firebrand producer who was producing the biggest hit on um bbc one suddenly decided i'll take doctor who over i'll make it a success again they would have gone no you're all right no no it's had its day and, and, yeah you know, make a series about vets or nurses that's what we want yeah it's only to billy he kept saying that oh we'd had star wars and had close encounters about this time and sweet should have said yeah they had the money so he kept saying, like, oh, it looked tired and rubbish, but he never sort of got him with the big question, well, why didn't you increase the budget if you wanted it to look like that? And I think he, sort of, yeah. like, he was a bit cowardly not uh, saying that. Yeah, and I think it's funny when someone like Michael Gray talks about, oh, Doctor Who looks cheap and terrible, and we all immediately think, oh, he must mean Warriors of the Deep. But from his, through his eyes, he could have been watching Caves of Androzani and said exactly the same thing, you know, yeah. when, when the, the, lava, the magma creature comes out or something. Yeah. Uh, if he, just, he just doesn't like it. But hey, it's a miracle that he managed to raise, to fight his way up to get that job. Um, coming as he did from his, uh, from a, a family where he only had two uncles in the House of Lords, one of whom was uh, Lou Grade, and uh, yeah, there's a funny, um, there's there's a press cutting of um, it's Bill Bill Cotton who was then a, another a grandee on the BBC, um, or uh, saying, oh, it's wonderful that my, young Michael Grade has now been appointed as, uh, and he'd been he'd been the person who did the appointment, and it's wonderful that Michael Grade has been appointed as the, the new this, into this role. Uh, I've been a friend of his family for years, and I can guarantee he's the right man for the job. <laughs> it's like you've literally given your best mate's son a, the job, the most well-made job in British television, and you're saying that you know he's going to be good. <laughs> That's how you Where get the job. But it's to Bill Cotton's credit because he was the one who actually said, "No, um, we we can't get rid of it completely." Was it? Ah, it has to return. Yeah, I rescind my cynicism entirely. The man's a hero. Take it off the air and revamp it. But again, um, he doesn't quite go in for the same the killer question. If you thought the show was in that much of a trouble and you wanted it to be rebranded and firebranded, why did instead of getting rid of the star, why didn't you get rid of the producer and the mm. the script editor? Because you know, they were staff, so it was yeah. politics. Wasn't yeah, that, that's yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they, was a producer. They had to give him. They couldn't make him redundant because they had. They had to give him another role. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how it worked, but yeah, that was that was the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. So in the time lash of everyone who departs with the scream. And, and various other things. Let's have another go. Let's see if there's a consensus on this one. Who gets the best exit in um, in Time Lash? On the count of one, two, three. The burning oh, Android. It's terrible. <laughs> Does anyone want to defend their selection there? <laughs> no, I, I can't hear yours when I'm doing my own. <laughs> you just said it's terrible, didn't you? I said, <laughs> I don't care, they're all terrible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I went for the burning android that mysteriously appears, and then it turns out it was the Doctor who beamed it back in time um, with his crystal thing. I think that's quite cool. And a very unusual use of time travel within a Doctor Who story. Although it's not really explained properly, but that seems to be what the gist of it was. I like Tekka just randomly deciding he's not a bad guy after all. I'm going to be a good guy. Oh, it's killed me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I'll stand in front of your death ray while I tell you. <laughs> no motivation for that change at all. <laughs> <laughs> What was yours, Jason? Oh, uh, Paul Darrow as well. Yeah, you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> and the moment when his skull hits the floor. Yeah. The sound of crumpled plastic. <laughs> Could have put a sound effect on that. Well, is it just an extension of Paul Darrick's? Well, towards the end of Blake 7, he was getting quite over the top, wasn't he? So by the time he'd come to Doctor Who, he was like he'd gone beyond over the top. It might be why his uh, scene was cut out of Die Another Day then, <laughs> if he was that over the top. Oh, yeah, he was just a doctor or something. Yeah, he, he was the doctor. Yeah. He, one of the doctors who sees to Bond after he's been uh, handed back by the uh, Korean, North Koreans. Oh, wow. I think you see, you still see his hands or something. I think he's still in there somewhere, okay. but his actual <laughs> lines of dialogue and stuff were cut out of the film. There's a hand overacting in the corner. <laughs> I'm talking of guest casts. Uh, should we move on to the story that I think has got one of the greatest casts in, in all of Doctor Who? Uh, our concluding tale of this amazing box set, The Revelation of the Daleks. Mm. Colin, no, the best the best story on this is the is the Lenny Henry show. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that just it's, it's bloody brilliant. <laughs> he, he absolutely should have been Doctor Who. He's so good. He, I mean, obviously it's playing for comedy, but we know what a great, a, a terrific actor he is now. And uh, yeah, I thought he would have been brilliant. Um, he just nails the whole thing. It's so funny. He's just as Rupert. It's got all these eighties <laughs> things, uh, like, like traffic wardens and Thatcher and Denos. <laughs> oh, I love it! Still makes me laugh. There was somebody on Twitter <laughs> had to quickly take down a picture because they'd mistaken Lenny Henry for Shooty Gutwell. Because there was a picture of Lenny Henry by the TARDIS, who thought it was Shooty, and then quickly had to. Um, it was pointed out from that oh, was a different actor entirely. Oh dear! Oh yeah! <laughs> somebody should have gone to Specsavers. <laughs> When Lenny, Hen- when Lenny Henry was in Spyfall, he was wearing a tie, I think, that had these little blue rectangles on it. And I was like, it's a clue. He's a future doctor. Mm. Um, oh. No, it wasn't. He was just a villain who wandered off at the end of the story. Never to be seen again. Never yeah, to be seen again. Unless. Unless he's there for the centenary. He might all, yes. all around him. <laughs> yeah. They'll all gang up. Oh. And Tegan shoots him. <laughs> Revelation of the Daleks is my favourite Dalek story. Um, I think it is. I, I, I love my sci-fi dark and dystopian. Uh, I think this has got this in droves. It also has oodles of atmosphere, which I love as well, with the snow and the brilliant Roger Lim score. Um, and it has, as you were saying, Pete, terrific guest actors and characters. Mm-hmm. Um it, it's one I can watch over and over again. And this time I decided not to really kind of watch it. I'd put the new 2021 comedy track on. Um, and on the back of the box, it's like, oh, you know, with Colin, Toby, uh, Terry, um, Nicola, and Alexi Sale. But they're not all together. It's ev- And Alexi Sale is a, is a separate track that Toby Haydoke, um fluently switches to from time to time. Actually, I think Nicola joins them for a little bit as well. Um, but uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in that if you've not heard about it. Alexi Sale being very, very careful with the the armorers with the guns because um, you know they, they were using real machine guns with blanks. And as you may remember from Caves of Androzani commentaries 
um, Nicholas saying blanks can kill you. Um, uh, so he was always going up to them, t- unloading the gun, checking the magazine and everything. So that was um, that was really interesting. And also he um, he sort of took Nicola aside and sort of just asked her what she was on. And um, basically, you know, I can't quite, I can't remember it all, but just basically had to try to have her back on um, the fact that she was getting ridiculously underpaid. So, what do you guys think of Revelation of the Daleks? I think I think it's one of the funniest Doctor Who stories, and I was—that's just my sense of humour. I was really, really pleased when we saw it on the big screen at the BFI that lots of everyone, lots of people were laughing at the same moments that I've <laughs> always laughed. Um, there's the really dark humour, and but then, but then there's just the symphonic moments of tragedy, and so my two, obviously my two favourites, Eleanor Bron, the ultimate in class and sophistication, um, and uh, and her role that in an, in another story she could be the main villain, or but in this she's more like she's sort of in the role of, of maybe the, the president has in um, in, in case of Anjazani. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got just utterly wretched Tassan Beaker, played by Jenny Thomason, who I know a lot of people for a long time. You'd never heard a good word said about her performance, but I'm really glad that some people do get it, and and that it's she is supposed to be the most pathetic, dismal creature that you could ever meet, and and, and it just tugs at my heartstrings. I feel so sorry for her. I saw um, Graham Harper interviewed at a convention last year, um, and he said he was disappointed that some people didn't like it because he was egging her on. He was telling her to do it, you know, be even more like that. Um, and then, then people saw the rushes. People at the BBC saw the rushes and said, "Oh God, why didn't you stop her doing that?" It's like but she's meant to be like that. It's brilliant. And Terry Molloy gives his best performance. I think the great healer has a mm. really different character to Davros. He's mm. he's he's um, he's sarcastically charming, and and he's and he, he he's he's um he's in disguise. Kind yeah, of. yeah, kind yeah, of. yeah. But, he, but he's adopts this persona, and and like the conversation where he says to, he turns to uh, Tassavika and says of Jobel, he says his infidelity is bad enough. And it's like I couldn't imagine Davros chiding someone for infidelity in any other. St- that's you know just not. He wants to conquer the universe, but here he is saying that this man has broken your heart and he's beastly, and that's why I want you to murder him. Um, but of course, he's just playing with her mind because it's entertaining him. Um, Sorry, yeah, I've got that was a rant from me, but I, I, no, that's great. I, I do like this story. <laughs> no, I love it as well. I think Jenny Tomlinson's performance is great. And again, I, as a kid, I wasn't too sure of it, and now I think it's, it's like, it's like when you've got a group of friends, and then you suddenly meet someone from another group of friends who you would have nothing to do with, completely different interests, completely different job, and they're just a bit odd to you. That's what it feels like with this particular character that they're, they're just like slightly, uh, you know, so, so different and behave so differently that it's, it's kind of alien. Um, but I uh, love it. I think people forget she was quite, quite a big star at the time because uh, she was one of the main players from uh, Upstairs Downstairs, wasn't she? Which was a huge show like, in the 1970s. And she That's played right. like one of the main characters in that. So, um, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, I've never heard of her. She's terrible, but like you say, she's she's playing the role as it's written, and um, Eric Sayward again is is channeling uh, Robert Holmes, you know, with um, you know Orsini and and Bostock, you know, who are fantastically played by you know William Gaunt, uh, great characters, uh, and like you say, you've got like the people like like Eleanor Bron as well, 
uh, in it as well. It, it's it's a great story. The only fault I will ever say of it is that you know the Doctor and Perry just don't get into the story quick enough. Have you, uh, yeah, but have you seen the, the surreal reason for that? Um, about that it was because J and it's basically a Doctor Light story because J and T wanted them both doing the panto, the panto down, in, yeah. down in Brighton. Was it Brighton or Southampton? Brighton, yeah. Uh, and he specifically said to Sayward, "You've got to write a story. Colin can't be in the studio for week one because we've got panto rehearsals." <laughs> and it was it was this in madness that you've got Colin Baker is the star of your your show, and you're telling your script editor to write a story that he's basically not in, in the first episode of because um, he's got panto rehearsals to do. It's like about putting the cart before the horse, really. And even crazier is the story about Laurence Olivier. <laughs> yes. Laurence Olivier reaches out to the Doctor Who production office. I'd like to appear in, in the show, please. Oh, what have we got? Let, oh, the mutant. Let's give him the mutant role. <laughs> Honestly, what was going through his head? Well, there was a deranged logic to it, wasn't there? Because it, was like, it was a role that you could just do on location. You wouldn't have to come to London. I, I, am I, I don't know. I, I, it's getting to me. I've been a fan too long. I'm starting to see logic to the decisions of, uh, of a 1980s production office. But, um, they thought that they were more likely to convince him to turn up to do a day's shooting on location than to get him to come into the BBC for a week. So this sort of, but yeah, wow, that would be. And I wonder what he would have said about Paul Darrow's Richard III the previous week if he'd been had a chance to see it, because that would have been a nice uh, alignment. I think it looked gorgeous. If you compare the sets to the previous show, I mean, dear God, it's like a totally different production, isn't it? I mean, and I remember when the, the, the two Dalek factions appeared at the end and were fighting each other, I thought that was the most exciting thing ever. I was quite disappointed how brief it was because in my the way I remembered it, it was like it was like this massive battle that went on for ages. And of course, it isn't. It's only like a, a quick shooter. But uh, now it's, uh, it's it, I mean, it could have been the last Doctor Who story. And um, mm. wouldn't have been a bad one for it to have gone out on. In a lot of ways, I mean, it was uh, it would have been a good story. It wouldn't have had the same sort of coda as um, survival attitude, I don't suppose. But uh, it, it got very close to being the last ever Doctor Who show, and I say it, it, at least it would have gone out on a high. Now you've made me imagine a version of survival that ends with the Doctor saying, "Come on, Ace, the tea's getting." <laughs> Come on, Ace, going to Blackpool. <laughs> Well, it just shows how good a, a director Graham Harper was, and oh, yeah. you know it's a shame that obviously with the reduction of the budget and the the episodes by the cancellation, that we kind of like lost into stuff like uh, other shows, didn't we? Uh, and then you know, but we were lucky enough to then get him back from uh, yeah from David Tennant's first series onwards during the Russell T Davies years. Although I think his decision on the Dalek voices was wrong. He wanted them to sound more. Like less mechanical. I'd, I'd, one thing of criticism I would let this story is that I hate the Dalek voices. I really okay. wish uh, Nick Briggs had done it like uh, Dare the Daleks and done like redone them because uh, it's my one criticism. I hate the way the voices sound. But isn't there a reasoning for that? Isn't it because like Just humans... the humans being humans? Yeah, but then they, yeah, the Daleks sound exactly the same as well. So okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, that would have been perfect otherwise. But no, unfortunately, that, uh, so even if it's just been for the. Uh, the uh, the grey Daleks, but uh, you know, yeah, that's a really good point. Being with the glass Dalek is astonishing. I mean, I yes, remember exactly my skin crawling at that. I mean, that was such a good scene. Yeah, and that's where they get the voice right. Yeah. Mm. and it's it's horrific. And it was um, was it Dorkanirazdik or um or Anushka? There was the two. 
were they sisters? I don't know if they had the same surname, uh, who worked on Doctor Who time to time, well, a lot through the 80s to make to make that uh but um and so she did it was her idea to have all of the like the liver and things on on the side of his head rather than just the brain because she figured he's going to need liver he's going to need kidneys Mm. it used to be head in the box originally wasn't it and then they decided to do that instead and i'm so glad it would be a bit of anticlimax just having a head in a box wouldn't it Yes, yeah, and no, that I mean, I was and I was thirteen, and that creeped me out significantly. But that was just right. I mean, for someone who'd come to Doctor Who, aged eight, in the with that when Davison started, uh, or nine, uh, and uh, it had it had just gone in the right, you know, getting more and more sort of violent and disturbing. It was just right. For, I felt it was just right for me at that age. Do you know? Do we know? Does everyone know who it, who who it is? Uh, Stengos, the actor is Osgood from the Demons. It's the same guy. Good oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, when you said Osgood, I was like, really? Not not new Osgood. <laughs> not Osgood. Uh, Alec Linstead, that's his name. Oh. Yeah, he's in another one as well. I think he's in, he's in Robots. I can't remember now. He's in something else too. Yeah. But yeah, going back to the Dalek voices. Uh, yeah. Um, it's you can hear John Scott Martin's zippy voice. To mm. me, the Daleks just sound like zippy with with a slight sore throat, uh, <laughs> rather than. That is, yeah, one thing that doesn't quite land. Um, and I love I took and double acts. The fact that um, uh, Bostock turns to a senior and says they're like a double act of Kara and um, <laughs> yeah, they're like a double act. Yes, we get it. Vogel, uh, Hugh Walters, who is just so fantastically camp. I just the the rapport the rapport between Vogel and Kara is just amazingly well acted and amazingly well delivered. There's a great there's, there's some studio footage of their scene. Uh, it's it, it, of, of, of their recording block. Um, and their, their set is just um, Alexi Sales' DJ booth re- rearranged, uh, the room that they're in. Because uh, yeah. they, they, oh, I realised that. Yeah. yeah the, the, the one day they did all of her scenes, and the next day they did all of his. Well, there's also another good uh, double act, isn't there? There's Trevor Cooper and Colin Spall as uh, Tarkis and Lil. You know, they're another great double act here. You know, so that, there's three, um, you know, fantastic double acts in this uh, the story. Yeah. Which always makes it like you know watchable. The um, there's a great note for production note thing that I hadn't clocked before, uh, and that um, that they were inspired by Laurel and Hardy. With the, all the idea was that they would look like Laurel and Hardy as they came walking down a corridor, and the, and the production note saying that's why this bit of music sounds like Laurel and Hardy's theme tune, Dance of the Cuckoos. When they, there's a there's a slightly humorous moment with them quite early, and they walk off, and the theme and the incidental music just goes ding and it's just a tiny bit, not enough like it to get sued, but that that was the idea. Uh, Mr. Jobo, he he's not an easy lover. He's a creep, but easy lover is at number one at the moment. Uh, <laughs> oh, this, well he's got sorry. This that seemed like a good idea when I started doing them. And it, <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, but um, his performance is like, just just operatic, and uh, and his death. Well, uh, should we do, should we do our deaths of the week <laughs> one last time? Uh, see if there's unanimity or not. Although actually. Yeah, well, let's see. On the count of one, two, three. That was. I heard one. I said Jobo. I had another Jobo. You said Kara. It was for me. It was for me. I I was going to go with Jobo, but I changed my mind at the last minute. Oh, she just looks so kind of annoyed at it. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) 
I, I did nearly say um, uh, Vogel because um, d- because of his last line when, when the Daleks burst in on him and Kara. And he, he, he turns to the Daleks and says, how dare you enter unannounced? It's, like, it's, the, it's the way he looks at Eleanor Bron as he just falls. As in, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he loves her or he's gay and she's his absolute hero. Or we, we just don't know. We know there is an amazing bond between the two of them. Uh, yeah, and her line about good secretaries being so hard to come by. Anyone else could have hammed that up. But the way that she delivers it, you just know she's saying, I know I'm done for now. I'm going to, I'm next, aren't I? Yeah, good um, point. Yeah, she's, she's, she's in a class of her own. The exquisite Helena Bron. I once had a really big argument with my housemate about which one of her Doctor Who stories she said the word exquisite in. Uh, and we ended up getting the videos out and going, look, he was going, look, she says it in City of Death. And I was like, no, she says exquisite workmanship in Revelation of the Daleks. And then we discovered she's, yeah, she says it in them both. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's the law now. <laughs> So, one thing that I found really moving uh, on the uh, locations documentary, uh, it's the bit at the end where Colin and Nicola are talking about how they felt when filming wrapped, and they just had this lovely feeling that they'd done a really good job and they'd got it all in the can. And I was just thinking that's exactly how I felt watching it prior to, up up until the the announce the, the suspension announcement came in that that was the first time that doctor who suddenly became something that could be taken away from me forever if some horrible men in london decided to it's a very strange thing to have to comprehend as a, as a... i remember the moment really clearly i came back from somewhere my father was sort of like waiting for me you know with that sort of face like the eulogy sort of herald the dead aunt or something like that and he sort of said uh, oh it's just been the news doctor who's been cancelled and i just said oh the the fan club will stop that, and uh, no, <laughs> I don't think it's off like that. <laughs> but you were right. But straight off to the bedroom and started writing. <laughs> writing a song. Anybody else <laughs> get involved myself? I just assumed the great and the good would sort it out. So, what about you two guys? Do you remember the cancellation bombshell? I don't know. Um, well, I think I do because obviously I think that's why I didn't watch Timeline because it it fell. Like you say, between the two doctors, two and three, and I must have assumed that like episode three of the two doctors was the last like episode, and then like decided to like you know go off and play out in the spring sunshine, ride ride on, ride, ride on my BMX bike, you know, for the next <laughs> three Saturdays, you know. Um, so yeah, um, but I remember kind of like I didn't particularly miss the show shockingly because i think i was kind of like falling a little bit out of love with the show because tom baker was my doctor he was my doctor when i I was a like kid but then i really loved peter davidson i thought peter davidson did a great job and i always i remember when it was announced that peter davidson was leaving being really really disappointed because i kind of like thought He's, he's not been the doctor for long enough because obviously i was used to tom baker doing like bloody years <laughs> and years <laughs> That I'd known. Yeah, and it was not long after the Five Doctors went out, if I remember right. Yeah, Davidson's yeah. leaving was announced. So I kind of like whether that was like kind of like yeah. you know filled my mind and stuff. But then then I remember when I saw the trailers for season twenty three and the trailer of the Time Lord, I'd been really really excited that it was back, and then made an effort to watch it. And then there was that disappointment that obviously you know Colin Baker got you know removed from the role. You know, you know which was absolutely, you know, horrible for the BBC to do. 
And then kind of like watching it kind of like out of necessity or, or like the fact that I used to watch it. I kind of like didn't give season 24 much of a a kind of like go, but I made the effort to watch it every single week. But then I remember season 25 hit. And by the end of that first episode, when the Daleks climbing the stairs of Remembrance of the Daleks going, Oh my God. And that reignited my love of Doctor Who and it's never gone away since, you know, but I remember stupidly going into school the next day and I must've been, I think 16 by that point going, did everybody see Doctor Who last night? <laughs> you what? Are you still I... watching that for? And then realizing I must never mention <laughs> <Never that. mentioned laughs> it. Uncanny. again. So yeah, season 22 was kind of like that era of like really enjoying the show, but then kind of like realizing that there was other stuff that I was kind of like getting interested in because I was hitting that age. I was getting into music and, you know, you know, American comic books and, and girls and all that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> as you hit your, your high school years. So. As long as it wasn't the A-team, we can forgive anything yeah, except the A-team. <laughs> Although I do do still feel guilty about like leaving Doctor Who for Book Rogers for a couple of weeks uh, back in season. Uh, <laughs> I would know I was the same. It was the um the, I did it was the midweek repeats that got me into Doctor Who because on Saturdays it was uh, Book Rogers or before that Man from Atlantis. I don't even remember that. Like, that was Bobby Ewing from Dallas as yep. a, a man with webbed feet who I don't know what he did. He went on missions and yeah. Stuff. Um, that was repeated recently on uh, one of the old That's Sky it. channels, um, and it doesn't hold. I, I was watching that instead of City of Death. <laughs> um, maybe I've learned my lesson. You did it! That's right! <laughs> hey, you guys, this is the broadcast window broadcast! Well, thank you, guys. Um, anything else have we missed? I mean, we haven't covered all the bonus features because there's a million. But um, is there just anything... want to say the lovely job they've done on a fix for the Doctor by editing out a certain person and turning it into a little mini adventure in itself. Yes, they found it. Which ends on a cliffhanger as well, which yeah. is really good. Cool. I was like, where's the next episode? That'll be a good finished box set before we know it. And then <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, on the Colin Baker years, they sort of switched it around because originally Say would wouldn't allow them to show what he'd written. And so they showed the just for the clip of the fix. The doctor was um, was the uh, the ghastly person just coming on at the end. And this time they just swapped it around. He's gone, and they're just showing an actual clip of the um, fix with the doctor now. So it's it's uh, of course strange, but I think they've done it beautifully to sort of like acknowledge it still exists without um, giving any money to his estate. If you know, yeah, what I mean. yeah, yeah. They've done, they've done the best of a, like of a bad situation there, aren't they? You know, by doing what they've done. And the little commentary on it's a delight as well. So, and the, the little lad involved is now uh, majorly involved in curing malaria. Blimey. Also, it's quite you know, if, you've, um, if you watch all the uh, extras, you get this sort of bizarre experience of watching Eric Sable decaying before your eyes. It's the weirdest <laughs> You see, like, clips from, like, 20 years ago, then, like, five years ago, and then just recently, and he's sort of like, it's, um, somebody said he looks like um, Augustus or Vi Claudius, and he really does these days. <laughs> so, if you have issues with Mr. Sable, it's quite good we're just watching him rot. <laughs> well, he'd appreciate that. That's the kind of thing he writes his, his exactly. story. Yeah, he's turning into one of his own effects. There's still no sign of Paul Amor. No, yeah, they have to keep asking her. <laughs> She'll turn up eventually. So, thank you very much, guys, for, for um, sharing your thoughts. I hope this has been uh, an enjoyable walk down memory lane for um, people who 
amongst us will very much enjoy this uh, series, this atypical series of Doctor Who, but it's one that is uh, really enjoyable uh, and uh, does things its own way. Um, so thank you for listening to Trap One. We'll see you soon. Bye. 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 Uh, listen again when there'll be another trap one along quite soon discussing there we go straight into the bar um uh, by comparison with, yeah. uh, by comparison with some of the stuff back in tom's days this wasn't that violent the doctor is appalled however he deals with it he's an alien not a good time to lose one's head. So he doesn't um, do perhaps what you and I would do. He makes a joke. That's not the way to get ahead in life. But that's the only crime. And it's not a big crime. It's a shame he wasn't more headstrong. So that whole violence thing was, was a bit of a myth, really. It was, it was introduced as an excuse, I suspect.